right, what's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence coming to you with Anesthesia Guidebook. Before we jump into today's podcast, I want to give a quick shout out to Megan, who messaged me on Instagram uh, at Anesthesia Guidebook with the following message. Here she goes. Just wanted to say thank you for your podcast. It's had a huge impact on me deciding to go to anesthesia school. I used to listen to From the Head of the Bed while I walked my dog and just languished over whether or not I could do it. Your level of realistic optimism really made it feel possible for me when I felt like I had no one who could understand this decision. I start my first semester in two weeks. Thank you for continuing to inspire and sharing your lessons learned. Megan, thank you so much for this message. It's incredible to hear from you. Good luck in anesthesia school. I'm so stoked that you decided to go on that path and uh, be sure to stay in touch. Let me know how it goes. So today's podcast is going to be an incredible story. I'm so glad to have Dr. Ryan Mountjoy join us again on the podcast. He was with us for episode 11, where we talked about crisis checklist and their use in emergencies. And we're also joined by Dr. Adam Ronan, orthopedic surgeon, Both of these physicians work at Maine Medical Center, and this episode outlines the overnight transition to same-day surgery and discharge for total knee patients at Maine Med. So Dr. Adam Rana was informed on a Tuesday afternoon in December of 2020 that elective cases requiring overnight hospital stays were being canceled effective immediately. Now, this was due to concerns related to COVID-19, a bed crunch, a staffing crunch, and the hospital having to contract out of necessity and cancel any surgeries that would require an overnight stay in the hospital. So he got this message, you know, early afternoon on a Tuesday, he reached out to physician anesthesiologist Ryan Mountjoy, along with others, and the very next day, they implemented a new anesthesia plan that got patients discharged safely the same day of surgery. These patients experienced equivalent pain scores postoperatively while remarkably requiring less opioid refills. The length of stay was slashed from 42 hours to 12 hours. You're going to hear more about the specific data of their outcomes in the podcast. These physicians, along with physician anesthesiology resident and lead author Derek Bunch and others, submitted this story as a proof of concept to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, commonly known as ASRA. And they're going to present this story at ASRA as well as other national anesthesia and surgical meetings. Dr. Bunch was unfortunately unable to join us on the podcast due to working his butt off on overnight call in the wee hours in the morning when we recorded this episode, but hopefully uh, we'll get him on the podcast in the future to talk about either this or some other regional topic. He's headed off to his regional fellowship later this summer, and I definitely wish him the best of luck with that. So he and Dr. Mountjoy provided their write-up. Their write-up is being submitted to ASRA, again, as a proof of concept. So if you want to see the specific data, the charts, the tables from their study, be sure to check the show notes that are available on the website for this podcast. So Dr. Adam Rana is a board-certified fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in minimally invasive hip and knee replacement surgery with specific training in the anterior lateral muscle-sparing approach to the hip custom partial and total knee replacement surgery, as well as revision hip and knee replacement surgery. Dr. Rana earned his bachelor's degree with honors in economics and biology from Colby College in Maine, where he graduated cum laude. 
while at Colby, Dr. Rana spent two summers in Minneapolis at the Hennepin Country Orthopedic Biomechanics Laboratory and was actively involved in research projects related to biomechanics and hip and knee replacement systems. He attended SUNY Downstate Medical Center for Med School and subsequently completed his orthopedic surgical residency at the Boston Medical Center. After residency, he completed a fellowship in adult reconstruction, arthritis, and joint replacement surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Dr. Rana is widely published in peer-reviewed journals as well as medical text chapters and frequently presents on orthopedic surgery at state and national meetings. He is actively involved in the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, and the New England and Maine Orthopedic Associations. He currently serves as the director of the Joint Replacement Center at Maine Medical Center. Now, you'll probably remember Dr. Ryan Mountjoy, who joined us for episode 11 of Anesthesia Guidebook. There, he talked about the use of cognitive aids in emergencies. He is a board-certified physician anesthesiologist with Spectrum Healthcare Partners in Portland. He is the co-director of orthopedic trauma and total joint anesthesia and the co-director of regional anesthesia and acute pain medicine at Maine Medical Center and the site chief of anesthesia at Maine Health's Scarborough Surgery Center. He completed his anesthesia residency at Stanford University and then pursued a regional and ambulatory anesthesia fellowship at Duke University, where he worked prior to moving to Maine. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing their story today. It's a remarkable story of building quality consistently over time and how if you do that, it puts you in a position to adapt when a crisis or a challenge arises. This team has been working very closely together for the last several years and weathered the first you know, eight or nine months of the COVID-19 crisis together. And then in December, we're met with this sudden cancellation of elective surgical cases that required overnight hospital stays. And they adapted literally within a 24-hour time frame, the entire anesthesia plan and approach to doing these cases. So with no further ado, we're going to jump in and hear from Ryan Mountjoy and Adam Rana. The audio quality is a little subpar as we were in three separate locations, all connecting to each other over video conferencing, which is what we do in the era of COVID-19. So it's a a little subpar in the audio, but I think you're going to be able to hang with us. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. I'm stoked that we're able to get the story out there. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, John, for having us and setting yeah, us up. for having us, John. Yeah. Well, Adam, I'd like to start with you. Will you kind of set the stage for the listeners and in, in what kind of challenge COVID-19 brought to doing elective total knee arthroplasties and how the idea of moving these cases to an outpatient and not just outpatient, but same day setting came about? So, John, thanks for uh, having me and setting up this podcast. And so, yeah, COVID did have a large impact on uh, hospitals across the country. And specifically, when it started last March, it halted elective surgeries across the United States. There were concerns from a hospital's perspective of hospitals being overwhelmed with patients and inability or lack of staffing to care for both patients as well as uh, PPE shortage. So as a result, hip and knee replacement surgeries uh, were canceled at Maine Med from March through May. And so we had this backlog of uh, surgeries. And once surgeries resumed in May, uh, it was a rolled out fashion. We got back up to speed around June. However, 
as we're all aware, there was this second COVID wave that occurred in December. And as a result, our hospital administration at Maine Medical Center made the decision to halt elective surgeries uh, requiring overnight stays, which historically had involved hip and knee replacement surgeries. However, they were allowing outpatient surgeries that were elective to continue. So we were faced with this decision tree. Do we continue doing hips and knees and try to get patients home the same day, or do we once again cancel uh, and then reschedule further out these uh, cases? So as a little background, prior to COVID in 2018 and 19, I had worked with uh, our institution on a clinical transformation project looking at a next-day knee program, and we're effective in reducing our length of stay for knees from two days to one. And I engaged key stakeholders through this project that included perioperative nursing, OR teams, physical therapy, care management, and anesthesia. And we learned a lot from this project that with this high-functioning team, we, uh, we could, in fact, change the dial and successfully and safely reduce the length of stay for our uh, knee patients from two to one day. And so these takeaways were very important in terms of setting the stage and the infrastructure so that when we were faced with this December situation of either canceling our cases or moving them to an outpatient setting, we had this high-performing team in place. And so this laid the groundwork for an effective outpatient uh, knee program. So I specifically reached out so when I heard this news from the hospital in early December to Dr. Mountjoy with our anesthesia group and discussed um, certain pain management changes that we could make to allow for uh, less post-operative discomfort, such as uh, a ductor block that's a longer-acting block with the use of a liposomal bupivacaine, as well as an IPAC block to reduce pain in the posterior aspect of the knee, as well as incorporating a shorter-acting spinal anesthetic mepivacaine, which could get patients up and mobilize them only an hour or two after surgery, which would allow our therapists to work with those patients. So we worked together in a very smooth manner, and I really also reached out to some of those stakeholders, as I mentioned previously, such as physical therapy, nursing, care management, and we were able to literally overnight implement this outpatient knee program, which was uh, a heroic lift in a very short time period, but again, due to high-performing groups, clear communication, we were able to successfully do this. Uh, and this was a proof of concept that we established at Maine Medical Center starting in early December. And we closely followed our first 50 knee patients, my patients as well as some of my partner's patients in early December through early January, 50 of which were included in this cohort, 48 of which went home the same day, two stayed overnight with zero readmissions on patients. So this proof of concept was established and that now that led to our success for the outpatient program, as well as uh, future working with the institution to take our knee program out to our surgical center in Scarborough, where we began performing outpatient knees starting in February. 
So. Yeah, that's that's really remarkable. I just want to highlight one thing that you said, just to, again, to touch on that timeline. So you had done this back work uh, to kind of, you know, optimize the patient throughput and length of stay, shortening it from two days to one day. And so literally you're saying the hospital said we're shutting down elective knee surgeries, shutting down elective surgeries. Now, unless your patients can go home same day, you're not doing those surgeries anymore. So you overnight changed this plan for post-operative care on your patients. And the very next day, you were sending patients home same day from, from surgery. Is that correct? So that's correct. It was literally an email that I received when I got out of the operating room at about 1.30 on a Tuesday. Uh, and starting effective on Wednesday, the hospital had said, Outpatient elective surgeries could continue. However, elective surgeries requiring an overnight stay needed to be canceled. Wow. So the wheels were placed, put in motion with reaching out to Dr. Mountjoy and the other uh, respective stakeholders. Uh, and we worked together as a team and a cohesive unit to uh, get this done and accomplish successfully and safe, safely overnight. Yeah. And, and then, so you say what you mean by proof of concept. So you immediately the next day started sending these patients home same day with adequate analgesia. You're obviously following these patients very closely. And then the, the idea behind that being a proof of concept is that you were able to continue doing these cases at the big hospital, at the mothership, so to say. And then over the next month or two, then you transitioned those cases out to the outpatient surgical center associated with the hospital. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yep. And so at the structure at the outpatient hospital wasn't set up at that point in time. The infrastructure wasn't set up at that point in time to do knee replacements at the uh, outpatient center uh, at, in December. However, working with the institution and working with the Scarborough Surgical Center, we were able to get the appropriate infrastructure instrumentation that we use for knees out to that surgical center and continue this pathway that uh, we had uh, established at Maine Medical Center. Well, that's remarkable. Ryan, what came to mind for you as uh, the initial challenges when thinking about moving these cases, which were traditionally at least overnight inpatient cases to the outpatient setting? I think when you think about total joint replacements, you think about mobility and pain as two of the significant issues that will keep patients in a hospital longer than you would want to. And when it comes to knee replacements, they may be uh, number one in terms of pain uh, and also mobility so they can get up and move with physical therapy. There are a couple challenges that we needed to overcome in both of those regards. The first is the actual anesthetic for the operation. There have been countless studies in both the orthopedic literature and the anesthesia literature that Spinal anesthetics have benefits over general anesthesia, not just in a short-term perspective, such as decreased wound infection, decreased chance of significant blood loss during an operation, decreased chance of DVT, but it, it's just the preferred method. So the problem with spinals is on the backside of it. If they sit in the recovery room for hours waiting to get motor function back, that's going to slow down our ability to get patients through this, the hospital system. How we conquered that first aspect was introducing a, a new medication to us from a 
spinal perspective, which is mepivacaine. And we have been traditionally using bupivacaine for our spinals, but the shift to mepi really highlighted that we can do a short acting dense intrathecal block that resolves almost when the patient is hitting the recovery room. It's pretty remarkable to see the toes moving when you're giving the report to the PACU nurse. Uh, that's been a really um, interesting thing to do. And it was a, a trial by fire for us because we had never done this before. We talked with some of the colleagues around our country and uh, in various other locations that have moved to this before we did it. So we felt safe. We felt this was an appropriate method, uh, but it was uncharted waters for us. We've seen that as a success. The second one is pain. Knee arthroplasty has gone through a lot of iterations over the years in terms of leaving epidurals in for patients to stay for days, doing femoral and sciatic blocks and putting the patients in those torture chamber devices to move the knee back and forth because they couldn't do it because of the motor blockade. The shift now has been to the adductor canal block and the IPAC block as two muscle sparing blocks, but with arguably similar, or at least non-inferior pain control over those muscle involving blocks. So those have been the two biggest changes for us on the anesthesia perspective. Yeah, that's great. Will you kind of give us a rundown on what these patients, or maybe Adam, you can speak to this too, uh, what these patients were receiving preoperatively outside of spinals and blocks in terms of their pain management? And did that shift at all moving these patients to the outpatient setting? So the preoperative uh, analgesics that we give uh, patients, first of all, we really have a, a multimodal approach. And so that, you know, in order to have a successful and sort of taking a step back, in order to have a successful um, outpatient knee program, there are certain factors that need to be in place. And so the Patient education before, when we first meet the patient, that needs to be very clear uh, education and setting realistic expectations. What we do at the time of surgery and pain control is huge. We haven't really changed the actual surgery or the implants significantly over the past years, but the pain control, which we'll touch upon is or get further into, is uh, a huge change um, that's occurred over the course of the past uh, 10 years. And then post-operatively, setting expectations and consistent messaging are the keys. So having that sort of pathway is, the, is, is what is necessary. And all of those factors need to come together and be very uh, uh, standardized to have a, a smooth outpatient pathway, and as well as patient selection is key. But from a pain management perspective, the preoperative uh, analgesics uh, that we give are really, we're working towards a multimodal non-narcotic pain program. And so we have patients that will take Tylenol as well as Celebrex, which is an anti-inflammatory the night before surgery. Uh, on select patients, we'll also give them Lyrica or pregabalin the night before surgery. And then the morning of we will do the Tylenol preoperatively and then in select cases, oxycodone preoperatively, but we're actually moving away from that uh, oxycodone. But that that's our attempt preoperatively for uh, getting patients you know, ahead of the curve yeah. before we undertake surgery. Yeah. And are, and are these patients also getting Celebrex the morning of surgery? We do have them get Celebrex the morning of uh, surgery as well. They'll get Celebrex uh, twice a day in the morning and afternoon for the first five days after surgery. Yeah, yeah, great. And uh, so, Ryan, how was implementing the IPAC block? So, 
any new block that you bring to a group, there is a learning curve. Um, we're blessed here to have dedicated regional anesthesiologists who are motivated, eager to learn, uh, and we do regular block workshops three times a year that has been curtailed during COVID due to restrictions. However, there were enough of us who are comfortable with the IPAC block. Um, I've been doing it since residency when it was actually first uh, described. Uh, and so the learning curve was not that steep for us. I will say what has been really important is to limit the number of people who do things so that you do them well consistently. And, and that's a problem in medicine across the board that we've shifted from all being generalists to all being rather specialists. And I think what that does is improve outcomes, but it certainly limits the number of people who are doing what they're doing. The con to that, or the, the, the other side to that is that people are doing it well and doing it consistently. And that's been the key for us. Yeah, yeah. And so just to be clear, previously, these patients were getting all of these preoperative oral analgesics. They were getting a bupivacaine spinal. We've switched to mepivacaine spinal to try to get them out of the surgical center quicker. And then previously, they were getting a postoperative adductor canal block. So spinal, obviously, for the procedure post-op out of the canal block, and now they're getting a spinal for the procedure, but with mepivacaine instead of bupivacaine, a pre-op out of the canal block, and a pre-op IPAC block, and the dosing of those two blocks are a little bit different. Is that correct? The, the out of the canal block is getting uh, a mix of bupivacaine and Expiril or liposomal bupivacaine, and then the IPAC block is getting ropivacaine. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. The shift has been to try and prolong the blocks as long as we can, given the indications for the medications. Now, um, Dr. Rana did a, a, a heroic effort to try and get our center to approve liposomal bupivacaine for the specific indication, which is the adductor canal block. Um, and our anecdotal experience with it so far is that patients are getting three, four, five days out of it. We have a several year history of the drug with the interscaling block for shoulders, which had a little, has a bit of a shorter duration than that. Um, however, it's still prolonging by a couple days the blocks. Ropivacaine, when we used for adductor canals, the patients did fine for the first 12 hours. And then hour 13 happens, and that anterior pain where the adductor canal was covering at least the incision portion was present. And that was keeping patients in the hospital longer. They were using more narcotics, as we showed in our project. Uh, and so switching to a longer acting local for the anterior block has really helped decrease that um, cliff that they fall off afterwards. Dr. Rana also includes some local anesthetic in his injection in the back of the knee combined with our posterior capsule or IPAC block um, to try and decrease that posterior pain, which is kind of the Goldilocks of knee analgesia because the posterior aspect is primarily the sciatic nerve. And when you involve the sciatic nerve at its source, you're gonna get foot drop and the patient can't move their leg. So all of the blocks that we do are muscle sparing blocks in addition to Adam's injection to keep the patients up and moving, but give them as much sensory coverage as possible. Yeah, that's great. And Adam, would you describe what kind of block you're giving intraoperatively to the posterior side of the knee? Yeah, so it's a periarticular block. There's uh, one. There's actually two doses that we give, two separate doses that we give. One is deep in that posterior capsular space, and it's a combination of marcaine, depomedrol, morphine, and some normal saline. And that goes in each 
area in the posterior capsule. And before it gets injected, I always pull back just to make sure we're not in the vessel, any vessels. Posterior laterally is where, you know, you're most concerned with. And then there's a superficial uh, injection, which is just marcaine and normal saline. And then, John, I'll just highlight one thing that you mentioned uh, is kind of where we were, we've come with this program. So, yeah, when I joined the group 10 years ago, you know, all of our total knee patients would receive general anesthesia. All of them had a femoral nerve block. All of the patients, the periarticular injection that I gave was just uh, marcaine, and the patient's post-operatively had a knee immobilizer for the first day because of the motor block from the uh, femoral nerve block. Patients typically got up, I would say, less than 50% post-operative day zero, so after surgery, and the majority of them got up post-operative day number one, and then uh, with physical therapy. And the majority of them were discharged on post-operative day number two or three. So that was nine years ago is when I started. The first change we made was going from general anesthesia to a spinal anesthesia, uh, which we saw right away the benefits of that from cognitive improvements from patient's perspective. We then, a year later, went from the uh, femoral block to the adductor block, and so got rid of the immobilizer. In doing so, we had conversations with our physical therapy colleagues that get our patients up, and they felt uh, they could see, and patients could see the difference in terms of quad firing power and the ability to ambulate after uh, surgery. And then I changed over the periarticular injection to include the depimedrol deep. And I thought that was a benefit for that periarticular injection that I give. And then most recently with our movement to outpatient knees, we, as uh, Dr. Mountjoy mentioned, we were able to get the approval for the adductor block of Expril, which has given that three plus day relief uh, for anterior sensory uh, relief of the knee and then combining that with the IPAC block. And also, again, working with our physical therapists to over 90% of the time get our patients up and mobilize. That's for all total knee patients. Uh, Obviously, the ones that go home same day are all mobilized uh, a couple hours after surgery. And then... As was mentioned earlier, going to the Mepivacaine really improved our patient's ability, not just to mobilize a couple hours after surgery, but we had been having some problems with the issue of urinary retention. And I always thought it was very difficult for you have a patient that's just out from a total knee that has a spinal that's laying in a stretcher in a bed and they can't get up and mobilize because their spinal is still working. And so we had a lot of patients receiving straight casts. That percentage has gone down significantly with the introduction of mepivacaine and the patient's ability a couple hours or an hour or so after surgery to get up and mobilize. And then they can walk to the restroom so we, we, we have seen that a significant improvement, but that's been a huge, this has been a huge evolution over the course of the past decade from a collaborative effort with uh, our anesthesia colleagues, as well as uh, therapy colleagues at the institution.
It, it sounds like a remarkable journey that you've been on and one that seems to be uh, spiraling upwards in terms of quality improvement. So, uh, so nice job on all of that. I know it's taken um, incremental, but also monumental lifts over the years. Yeah, I think it really highlights, um, you know, a couple of things that are unique at our institution, which is, you know, it, this is a team effort. Uh, and yeah. unless you have high functioning teams, something like this would not be possible. This is not me saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then people just doing it. These are people that were all working in concert together and have done so over a number of years with open communication channels and then saying, okay, well, this is the challenge that we're now faced with. How can we navigate this so that we don't have to reschedule these patients three to four to five months down the road. So it really just highlights the team aspect and the, you know, uh, the ability for everybody really to come together in a collaborative manner. So. Yeah. And, and I, and I think it, I think it brings forward the idea of if you're consistently finding ways to optimize your team's performance and mm. you're building good relationships, you're trying to optimize patient outcomes over time, it puts you in the position to, be nimble and adjust right. very quickly when you do quickly. have an unprecedented challenge that pops up. Yeah, exactly. No, that's well, well put. So this happened gradually at other institutions around the United States yeah. because COVID has put this sort of stress on a lot of hospitals. Um, but the fact that we could do it in such a short time period, look at the data, look at how safe it was because, you know, the, one of the concerns is, you know, is this safe? So yes, we didn't have any readmissions. Two people had gone to the ER for unrelated issues, you know, and then the additional bonus with this is this reduced use of narcotics because patients were feeling better with the added analgesics that we've uh, worked with. Yeah you know, the anesthesia yeah. crew on. So, yeah. Before we get to the outcomes of what this has meant to shift some of your knee surgeries to the outpatient setting, I want to ask both of you about Expiril and uh, specifically, because it's been in the news recently in terms of some literature that's come out this spring saying, you know, it's, it's, it's not showing a huge benefit perioperatively, but what, how, what would you say to that in terms of the experience of your patients and both of you as clinicians, um, uh, in terms of Expiril's effectiveness perioperatively? So Expiril definitely has, or so liposomal bupivacaine uh, has been around for a number of years and there were concerns, and it's been very, I would say, consistent in the literature that's very operator dependent, technician dependent when it comes to administering. And that's actually one of the reasons why I did not incorporate it in uh, my practice for the periarticular injection, because it was approved for the periarticular injection, but I felt that the periarticular injection that we were giving was very consistent. Now, as Dr. Montroy mentioned, we have dedicated subspecialized anesthesiologists that do an excellent job and are very consistent with the liposomal bupivacaine adductor block. And to that end, I thought that that consistency that we have at the institution at Maine Medical Center and in Scarborough has allowed us to see a clear picture. And so when you look at the objective data that we have so far as we've gone down this journey, we do see significantly less pain 
that the patients have. And that's in the form of less narcotics used while at the hospital. And then fewer refills of narcotics between the surgical date and the uh, two-week follow-up visit after surgery. Yes, great. And Dr. Mountjoy, what would you say in terms of uh, the recent news on Expiril? It's unfortunate that it was published in uh, in our preeminent journal because meta-analyses, you have to kind of understand what that concept is because they're good and bad. Meta-analyses are trying to incorporate all of the literature that's out there and make a summative statement about it. The problem with that is that the authors included a whole bunch of studies that are unapproved uses for Expiril or liposomal bupivacaine. So it's not approved for a lot of the studies that they incorporated into their meta-analyses. That leads to an unacceptable level of heterogeneity in terms of the data, uh, and you can't really make any conclusions out of it. I'll give you an example. We use it for interscaling blocks of the shoulder, adductor canal blocks for the knee, tap blocks for uh, field blocks for the abdominal wall, all of which have um, good, uh, albeit small because it's not, it's relatively new for some of these indications, but good evidence for it. The meta-analyses included all of those blocks, but then included, and I'm not joking, penile prostheses, implants, mammectomies, thoracotomies. It, you got to really understand that this is apples and oranges in terms of comparing some of these blocks with the indications that you're then right. looking at. So, I struggle with meta-analyses that don't look at the exact same patient population and the same surgery to then generate your outcome. Pain scores are also something in in literature that are really difficult to quantify. You you really want functional mobility and how are patients getting up and moving? Are they satisfied? More of the data in anesthesia literature now is focused on those types of pain, those sorts of functional outcome scores, which are way more clinically relevant, frankly, than the number that's recorded for pain. So I think we need to shift our our understanding of, of what's a good outcome if the pain is a certain level, but the patient is happy with that and is meeting physical therapy goals and is leaving the hospital with less opioid use, that's a win. And then finally, when you compare these studies, you got to be looking at the same studies to be able to make any meaningful outcomes. Yeah, that's it. More to come on that study, but there's going to be a lot of criticism about it. For sure, for sure. And that's a great generalized kind of review of the significance of meta-analysis, which can be very helpful. But I think when you get enough data in a denominator means in terms of a meta-analysis, it can sometimes dilute the quality of those numerators in in, in the specific studies and showing, um, you know, in, in a particular well-designed randomized control trial, you might have something that shows to be very effective for its intended use in the way that it was studied. But if you dilute that with a huge denominator of you know other variables, it can uh, decrease the effectiveness and lead to conclusions that maybe are not actually uh, as powerful as they perhaps were intended to be. So, uh, well, Dr. Rana, I want to come back to you. One thing, Go ahead. I'll yeah. just add one. Uh, just I'll add one thing, which is, you know, one of the benefits that we have at uh, Maine Medical Center is the one consistency in the volume of total knee and total shoulder replacements that we perform 
And it's the surgeon that performs a very consistent uh, procedure uh, routinely. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Watling, is the sh- our shoulder specialist. Myself and uh, three other colleagues were involved in a total knee study. That's uh, We looked at the lipos- uh, efficacy of our outpatient's uh, knee program in liposomal bupivacaine. Dr. Mountjoy and uh, his team were consistent with giving the blocks. And then we had dedicated research team to look and capture and uh, evaluates the efficacy of liposomal pivocaine. So I think having these factors in place, so while meta-analyses are important to look at uh, your specific institution and having this infrastructure in place to effectively look at, you know, whatever the question might be or the new sort of change or modification that's made to see, you know, if it's effective or not, it is a real key here. Um, but I just wanted to, you know, point out that having that infrastructure in place is, is, is key. Yeah. You want to see how an intervention goes. Uh, obviously you want to look at the literature to help shape your decision-making, but then you want to see how it goes at your particular institution. And if you've got a well-designed infrastructure for capturing that data, you can, you can definitely see those outcomes. So to that end, Dr. Rana, I'd like to know, how many of like what percentage of uh, patients have shifted to the same day outpatient setting, and and we should say briefly on that that there is the capacity if those patients need it postoperatively to be monitored overnight at the outpatient surgery center. But the intention is that most of these outpatient knee replacement surgeries, those patients are going home same day. So what percentage of the total knee replacement uh, patients have shifted to that environment, and then what have the outcomes been like? So. I've taken uh, a surgical di- one surgical day a week of patients and moved it from our uh, tertiary care center to our uh, Scarborough Surgical Center, which acts like a, an ASC. Um, the structure over there is there's uh, 10 operating rooms and there are seven beds uh, for patients if uh, they require an overnight stay. I'll typically perform four uh, knee replacements a day with the expectation that the first three will go home uh, the same day. At that center, we've now performed over uh, 40 same day uh, knees. All patients have gone home that day and then the patient that was expected to stay the night stays the night and all of those patients uh, have gone uh, home the following day. I would say that it is nice to have that ability because at certain ASC settings, ambulatory surgical center settings, lights go off at five o'clock. Right. And there really is not an option to have the patient stay overnight. So that was uh, helpful with the transition. But we had before moving to the Scarborough Surgical Center, had done a proof of concept test uh, starting in early December at our tertiary care center at Maine Medical Center it, in the joint replacement wing where we moved to uh, an outpatient's uh, uh, knee program. And it's been very well received by first and foremost patients. They really, the the smaller, more intimate environment that exists at the ASC and more one-on-one interaction with the nursing staff preoperatively and postoperatively, I think has been uh, well-received from a satisfaction perspective. The patients, you know, their pain scores and their mobilization uh, few hours after surgery, we've transitioned our physical therapist to be at Scarborough to meet the patients about an hour after surgery to get them up and mobilize them. So they're 
inambulating post-operatively that time that period has uh, reduced as i mentioned earlier because of the shorter acting spinal the incidence of uh urinary incontinence has uh and straight caths has uh dropped to almost zero and you know when we see these patients at the two-week mark uh, the pas that work with me routinely say that's that block has lasted three to four to in some cases five days yeah um so that's all been well received and we've seen that as well being translated to fewer narcotic refills that patients have uh, requested so these are all positives that we've seen so you know from a value perspective when we think about orthopedic value it is you know quality over cost and so from a quality perspective believe the quality is uh, improved with patients being able to get home earlier, which has also reduced costs. So that value proposition is uh, important as well. Yeah, that's excellent. So you all have written this up as a, a bit of a kind of a, just a review of the concept uh, for um, ASRA. And, and in that data that was provided, which we can put in the show notes to the podcast, you compare, um, you know, next day knee patients to same day knee patients. And I just want to highlight a couple of the numbers and and get your take on them. So you looked at uh, similar timeframes, I believe, you know, over a four to six week period a year ago with the tertiary care patients going through next day discharges from knee replacement surgery to the same day concept. So about 50 patients each, the average length of stay went from 42 hours a year ago to 12 hours uh, with these outpatient cases. And the pain scores have been essentially equivalent. However, as you've mentioned several times, the post-operative narcotics are lower in terms of the usage. So number of patients filling narcotics following surgery, this is out of roughly 50 patients, 25 in the next day group, 20 in the same day group, and then total number of narcotic refills I thought was really substantial. 49 out of the next day group and 27 out of the same day group. So so these patients are consuming less narcotics postoperatively, but they have equivalent pain scores with this shift in the pain management plan. And they're going home a whole day earlier. They're going home same day of surgery. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, what's so nice about that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go for it, Ryan. My comment is, uh, John, when you look at that data, it, we matched the demographics pretty well and that yep. they're the same age. The average age was 63. The average ASA score was 2.3. The case length was the same. Anesthesia length was the same. It's just the length of stay. That's really a huge portion that this was successful and why I view this as a proof of concept that it could work and that it did. There is the minor reduction in opioid use in the, and what's I think the biggest one is that the refill, that's always one that I worry about. In terms of all the our multimodal protocols that we do, we feel good about it when the patients are here. But when they go home, if we haven't improved the number of pills that they're taking at home or keeping in the medicine cabinet to be abused, stolen, diverted, et cetera, we have not changed the healthcare system. And this right. is where I think that we can take away something from this study. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Uh, Dr. Rana. No, I would re-echo and reiterate everything that uh, Dr. Mountjoy said. Yeah, great. So uh, any any kind of closing comments on what this shift took in terms of the lift? It's not as simple as, hey, we want to shift these patients to an outpatient setting. I mean, there's, there's a multifactorial process that uh, involves not only the surgical team, but also 
a lot of background staff in terms of perioperative nursing, administration, the anesthesia team. So uh, any comments on that that may be helpful for other teams who would be looking at doing something similar? So this is the an ultimate team efforts. I've, you know, been at uh, Maine Medical Center now for nine years. And, you know, any surgical team is that it's a team and it's not just the surgery. So going into this journey of uh, transitioning from next day to an outpatient knee program has involved, as you mentioned, uh, John. So it's involves office staff uh, setting up schedules. It's involved the APPs that we work with, the PAs and NPs providing consistent education for our patients. We have a nurse educator who has a preoperative joint replacement class who speaks specifically about expectations for patients preoperatively. It involves gathering the perioperative nurses. So the preoperative and postoperative nurses are key for providing consistent messaging to our patients of what to expect before and after surgery. It involved engaging our uh, physical therapists and changing their uh, schedules so that they could meet with patients one or two hours after uh, they got to the PACU to get them up and mobilize them. It involved our uh, case managers who were involved in discharge planning, who worked towards setting up uh, services for when patients got home so that they were you know, evaluated and worked with physical therapists uh, post-operative day number one when they got home. And then the OR teams uh, it also involved. And then you know, getting the buy-in from administration saying that we, you know, we can do this in a safe manner. And you know, not most importantly, but it was extremely uh, important to have the relationship that's uh, developed between Dr. Mountjoy and myself. And he's been a true leader uh, with the anesthesia physicians, as well as the CRNAs that we work with, the exceptional CRNAs that we work with. And so it's been really collaborative effort where everybody, I would say, the communication has been very consistent. And the patients always comment on that. That's, you know, this there, there weren't surprises. And so when you can go, and this was all done on a, over the course of a day, there was a day back in in December, where I had gotten out of the operating room doing hips one day in Scarborough and was told by the institution that you can't do elective knee replacements that stay more than, you know, that stay overnight. And so I called uh, Ryan up and we've been talking about making certain changes. And, you know, this all, this all happens and we're able to implement this in a very short time period, but with, but, but very smoothly. I mean, what yeah. you capture what we captured in the uh, in the in the study there in that pilot study was our first fifty or so uh, yeah. outpatient teams. So. I, I think it, if folks haven't caught it yet, I think that's just one of the remarkable pieces of this story is that you know this is an example of COVID nineteen being a catalyst for substantial change in the flow of patients getting their knees replaced. So. Obviously, it touched all of those different people that are involved in supporting patients through that process. But it, literally, at the at the flip of a dime, the hospital had to contract their available case slots for all kinds of surgeries. They were looking at where can we make changes because 
We are at capacity. Our resources are stretched thin for a number of reasons, whether that's surgical throughput, PACU beds, uh, you know, places for people to go out of PACU for admission beds, uh, to discharge home, to staff resources and utilization. So, you know, this was not something that the hospital asked for, but there was a huge contraction. And I think it just shows the nimbleness of this team, uh, Dr. Rana, yourself and, and Dr. Mountjoy to switch gears and get these patients home same day, the vast majority of them. And I think it's your, your data has shown that it's been wildly successful. So uh, nice job. I hope this is a, a source of inspiration for other teams as well. Well summarized, John. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Well, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything else that you'd like to sound off on before we head out on this topic? I think this evolution is going to continue. Um, it's not for all patients. And one of the things that this is a subset of uh, select patients that we identify. And I think it's very important from a healthcare perspective as we move forward. Um, and this is going to be my health advocacy cap that I put on for a second. But as we take healthy patients and move them more to the outpatient setting, it's very important for tertiary care centers that are going to be taking the burden of less healthy patients that the institutions remain uh, to have appropriate compensations for their respective cases uh, that are that are more complex and more challenging because the the movement of cherry picking and lemon dropping can be a, a problem with the overall healthcare system as we move forward. But we'll work to navigate this in the most a responsible uh, manner for preserving both our ASC setting and our tertiary care center. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great sound off. Uh, Dr. Mountjoy, anything that you'd like to say in closing? I'd say medicine is a team game and you're only as strong as your weakest link. And when you're working in a system like this, that's so interdisciplinary, you can see the pieces of the pie really come together and that if you've got one shining part of that pie, it's not going to be the whole thing. And I think the infrastructure is key to be able to work across disciplines and specialties from the ground up. And, and we've been blessed to have that and, and be able to have show our success because of it. So we don't practice in silos. We can't. It's not feasible. If it was in the past, it's not in the future. And I think this shows as a model going forward of how to be successful in an ever-changing healthcare setting. Yeah, that's great. Well, Dr. Mountjoy, Dr. Rana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to share your story. Uh, it's a remarkable story of change brought about by the catalyst of COVID-19 and your team's respective abilities to shift gears and optimize care for these patients. And I think it's been, uh, Dr. Rana, as you have described, really impactful for these patients, which is ultimately the goal to provide a, a higher quality of service for them. So uh, thank you so much for coming to share your stories. Thank you for having us, John. Thank you, John. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.